Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Continue the Sermon on the Mount. Begin with verse 13. Listen to the word of God. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people lant a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that through your words proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you all know, I'm, I'm back in the youth ministry business, which is how I started, and, uh, and we have a lot of fun. And one of the things that, um, you know, that marks, I think, good youth work is, is how can you uh, have them uh, embody some of what you're trying to talk about and have fun while you're doing it? And last fall, I think it was the world, the week of the World Series, um, we did one of the, we, we revisited one of my favorite kind of themes, and that was um, coming up with a game that um, has no rules, all right? And, and it's, kind of a, it's kind of an experiment, and, uh, and you, if, it, if it happens with the kids, if the kids buy into it, it's a lot of fun. And the, the game started... Uh, I call it the, the most amazing game ever invented by humanity, which, you know, was not true at all. And, uh, but that whole point is to get them a little bit making fun of it from the beginning. And so in this game, it was a combination of kickball, wiffle ball, and trivia. Okay? So when you got up, you could either try to swing a wiffle ball, hit a wiffle ball, you could kick a kickball, or you could get on base by answering a trivia question. Okay, and they threw themselves at it. It was a lot of fun. But I kept moving the foul lines. All right, initially, there were no foul balls. Okay, but they got frustrated. So then I, I created foul territories, and then I kept moving the foul line. And then at the end, whatever was a foul ball is what I decided was a foul ball. Okay. So... Eventually, now sometimes I've done something like that in the past, and people get really angry and frustrated. Okay, 
All right, and they'll be yelling, it's not fair. What happened last fall with our group was that they, they joined into the anarchy of the whole thing. So, for instance, the second baseman started moving the base every time someone tried to uh, get on base. And one of my favorite parts of the whole thing is the second baseman is running into uh, to the firehouse while the guy who just hit the ball is chasing him into the firehouse. So it was great. All right? they, they, got the, they got the sense of it. But we all know that there are certain things you don't need to add, right? There are certain things that are just pure and enjoyable, okay? Maybe the best things in life are just the things that are purest, all right? So you don't really need to add music to a sunrise or a sunset. I personally don't think you need to add a boardwalk to a beach, okay? I think a beach is perfectly fine without a boardwalk. I, I understand why they do it. But some things to maximize the joy from them need something else, right? For instance, games need rules. Um, roads on mountains need guardrails. Food usually needs some seasoning, okay? How many times have we just said, you know, it just needs a little salt? And of course, I was trying to fix something on the TV and I couldn't see, and it wasn't because I'm older, it was because there was no light. So guess what? A little flashlight, the job got done, right? So sometimes we need to add a little light. Sometimes we need to add a little salt. Sometimes we need to add some boundaries. And in many ways, what Jesus is here, and he's kind of seemingly, I don't know, they seem to be maybe unrelated, but they actually are very related. He, he gives us a, a, a series of kind of images um, but they're all kind of talking about the same thing. What's it, what's it mean? What is really the essence of how we're to live our lives? Who are we in this world? And how does God relate to us in this whole task? It starts out with, this, you are the salt of the world. Um, something that we maybe don't realize in our modern age, because we just go and pick out salt, okay? We have options, right? We have you know all kinds of different options. But a lot of world history is shaped by the salt trade. For instance, if you're still working, most of you get a salary. Okay? Do you know where the root of salary comes from? The Latin word for salt. Okay? Because Roman soldiers were paid in salt. Okay? If you're eating healthy, you eat a salad. Okay? That also comes from salt because the Romans would put salt on their greens. So, so many of our languages shape, some of the most foundational things of our language are shaped with the idea that salt was so fundamental, okay? One of the reasons the Dutch Reformed Church survived was because when Philip II was trying to conquer the Netherlands, the Dutch cut off his salt business and they went bankrupt. They couldn't fund the war anymore, right? So part of the reason the Reformed Church in America maybe even exists is because we, we took the guts out of Philip II's salt trade. The French Revolution, in part, was riled up because of an incredibly heavy tax on salt. As we were talking with the kids in the children's talks, salt is so important. We need it for our body. We need it for muscle. We need it for so many things. Um, and we use it to preserve. We use it to flavor. We use it to purify. 
So Jesus tells us we are the salt of the world. It is through us that the world is preserved. You are the light of the world. You know, light is a central metaphor in the Bible for many things, right? I mean, the whole thing begins with what? Let there be light, right? And there was light. When Moses receives the Torah, remember they asked him to cover up his head? Why? Because his, his light, his face was so bright, shining with the presence of God. The Shekinah of God shone upon him. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a candle, and the Torah, the law, is light. Jewish mystics would sometimes say that there's a hidden light from creation. Okay, That there was a light, that the physical light, but God also created a hidden light. It was something that Adam lost. But that when God gave Moses the Torah, when God gave Moses the law, that light was hidden in there. And that light is how God and humanity are supposed to relate with each other. And I think that theme is present in Matthew, but it's also present in John's Gospel, right? Beginning of John's Gospel is, if you would, a, a um, commentary on Genesis 1. And John says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the light, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Of course, Jesus is being referred to here as the light of the world. But Jesus turns around and says, we are the light of the world. And part of what he may actually be saying is, you are the Torah of God. You are the law of God. In other words, you are the means by which God relates to the world. And sometimes we, you know, because we have uh, wonderful, there's wonderful quotes based on this passage about being a city on the hill. Um, as kids, one of the first songs you learn is what? This little light of mine, right? Okay. Hiding under a bush. Oh, no. We do the motions, but there's something very powerful being stated here. Jesus is saying that the image of God in the world. What God is up to in the world is present in you. You know, sometimes we take things for, for granted. Like, for instance, I've been thinking about tonight, I'm giving a talk on love uh, to the, to the um, youth group kids. And we throw that term around so often, right? We throw the term around, God loves you. And it's very helpful periodically to be reminded how often that term doesn't have meaning for some people. How does someone I, I can't see, someone I don't even know exists, you say that God loves me, but I, how do I know that? How do I see that? Jesus is very clear here. You are the light of the world. Just talking about God... <laughs> Just throwing God around. Just saying you're you know, marching under the banner of God is meaningless if, if, if no one can see anything of the reflection of God in that, right? 
First John, you know, if you say you love God but do not love the brother, you, you know, if you say you love the God you cannot see, but you do not love the brother or sister that you can see, then there is no love or God within you. So Jesus is saying you are the light, right? But it's possible to hide that light. And, you know, sometimes we think of bold ways. How can we boldly be present to the world, right? Okay. Um, well, in this day and age, we just need some, some glimmers of hope, okay? We don't need, you know, we don't need beacons right now. We just need some, some little candlelight of truth, of hope, of goodness, of mercy. On some levels, public decency has become a courageous act. We're not in the best of times, friends. But the good news about that is that you can be, you know, it doesn't take a lot of light, right, to pierce the darkness. I mean, there's all kinds of cliches I can say there. Uh, I'm reading uh, Tomas Halik's um, memoir, uh, he is a Czech theologian, priest. He was ordained secretly uh, during the uh, right after the Soviets came in and crushed the '68 uh, Prague Spring. Okay, he lost his job at the university because he refused to compromise when the Soviets came back in, um, and he became a, ordained a priest. I mean, people they they had this whole kind of secret. Um, way of being priest in in the Soviet bloc because you weren't allowed to practice your faith unless you were under um, the supervision of the you know KGB infiltrated secret police infiltrated church. So there was a very it was a very difficult time. Matter of fact, a couple of people who became bishops after the Soviet bloc collapsed. Um, were like janitors. They were punished. They were janitors and custodians um, during the Soviet period. Um, one of the most influential teachers he had um, was in a concentration camp under the Nazis, and then was forced in radiation. Was working in radioactive mines under the Soviets as slave labor. Okay, you're doing something right if both the fascists and the communists put you in jail. Okay, right? You're doing something right. But that's the kind of suffering that went on. And we need to be reminded there are people who are suffering for their faith even as we speak. But Thomas Halleck, so he lost a couple jobs because they didn't know he was a priest, but he didn't he wouldn't collaborate with the communist government. And so he ended up being a caseworker, a counselor at a rehab hospital. And this brilliant guy, I mean, he's a brilliant philosopher and a brilliant theologian. He ended up getting training in uh, psycho, uh, psychological care as well. So he gets a certification. So he's being a counselor, a drug and alcohol counselor. counselor. And he's, he's giving a talk to teachers and, and residents and medical professions. And, there, you know, there are, there are party infiltrators there as well. And he's talking about different ways that you can kind of manage your life. And he says some people find faith. You know, he has to be very careful here. 
he says some people find faith as a way. And then one of the people who was recovery in recovery said to him, well, how about you, counselor? Are you a person of faith? And he said, yes, I am. Now, <laughs> that doesn't seem like a bold statement, right? But it, it was a remarkably courageous statement. It was, it was lighting a candle. In that context, it was lighting a flare. And he said it changed the whole way people dealt with me in a good way. And so there's a sense where you don't have to make any kind of bold witness, okay? You don't have to do anything extraordinary for God to do extraordinary things through you. Your match, your candle, your little flashlight, whatever you have, can shine in this world and make a difference. And then Jesus moves to the idea of the Torah, and in reality, he may have been talking about the Torah the whole time. I think that's something we often miss in our, you know, we don't have the same Jewish background um, that the readers of Matthew initially had. But when he's talking about light and salt, those are, those are very possible metaphors for what the Torah was to be in the world, the law. Okay? And so Jesus says, I've not come to destroy the Torah, the law. I've come to fulfill the law. There's this great story where... Um, it's a rabbinical story. It's in the Talmud. And uh, Moses is on the mountain waiting for God to finish. <laughs> God's you know, doing the finishing touches on writing the Torah. Remember, if you remember your Exodus story, God's the one who writes the first one, right? And so Moses is up there waiting. You know, you, you often wonder, why did it take 40 days to do it if God's God? Well, apparently in this Semitic story, God is like decorating the letters, Okay, he's putting little caps on the letter, and so Moses is going kind of, uh, what, what's that about? Okay, so God puts Moses in a time machine, literally. So Moses and God show up in the second century, and he says, God says, I'm going to show you what you know these caps are for, and so Moses ends up in the academy of Rabbi Akiva who was the most known teacher in the second century, the great teacher in the second century. Okay. And so Moses is actually entering into a class where Moses is being taught. Okay. But he doesn't understand a thing that he's saying. Matter of fact, it's, it's ironic. Moses has to sit in the seventh row. Okay. And in rabbinical schools, it's kind of like the orchestra. Okay. If you're in the first seat, you're the best. Okay. So Moses had to sit in the back of the class because Moses didn't understand Rabbi Akiva talking about Moses. Okay. So, you know, you have this scene and, and they end up back on Mount Sinai and Moses is going, well, why do you need me? And it's kind of sarcastic. Okay, if this guy knows me better than I know, why do you need me? And the whole point is 
that um, God has given us his word, his law, but it doesn't stay the same, right? It keeps changing as we change, as we interact with it. God's word, God's law, God's standards is a living thing. Okay, this is a very important metaphor for what scripture is, right? Okay, it's to be a dynamic thing, okay? <laughs> um, and, and that's part of the power of this idea. And Jesus is saying, I actually am the fulfillment of the law. In other words, I didn't come to change what's come before me, but it's through me you can understand what it really means. It's through who Jesus is we can understand what God's up to. If we even go back to what's the initial light of creation, it is the means by which God wants to relate with us. The whole idea that God gave us the law was in order for us to have a relationship with God. Okay. Now we know how that didn't quite work out, but the intent is still there. What is God up to in the world? Well, God's up to wanting us to know him. But that's done concretely through his people. You are the light of the world. You are the Torah. You are the salt of the earth. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. He is the seasoning. He is the great cleanser. He is the one that preserves. He is the light of the world. And in his life, death, and resurrection, we are shown what God really is up to in the world. And in his ongoing presence, we are now the light, the salt of the world. This is what we are in the world. Tonight's Academy Awards, I've seen one movie that's nominated for the Academy Awards, 1917. It's an amazing movie. Um, and I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, but there is this story of how a man is given a mission to run through the midst of this war to try to save a group of men from certain death. And this, this particular soldier has lost his humanity. Um, he has, seems to have a wife and child back home, but he says, I, I, he basically says, I need to die. I can't go back home because this thing has changed me so much. And I can't bear to see the pain in their eyes anymore. So here's a man, like many of them who did the trench warfare, had given up on life. He was sure that he wasn't going to survive. Again, it's an amazing movie, but he goes on this impossible mission. And it struck me as I was thinking about this, you know, maybe all stories are redemption stories, whether it's Exodus or the Odyssey. Maybe all great stories of humanity are about trying to find our way back home, right? And there's a scene where there's a cow. He, he fills his canteen up. They haven't eaten. He fills his canteen up with milk, okay? And it just seems like a random thing. And he's, you know, he puts it away. Later on in the movie, he's in this burned-out shelter, and he finds this young woman and a baby. The assumption is her, this 
this woman just found this baby abandoned. The mother's probably dead, and the baby's hungry. And he remembers he has the milk. And he and he gives this woman enough so the baby can eat. And so he saves that baby's life, but in connecting with this woman and this baby, what's born in him is a desire to live, to see his own wife and his child. See, in the life of Christ, we are given back our life. During Holy Week, we will be reminded that the great command that Jesus gave us, the new command, was we are to love as he has loved us. What does it mean to be light and salt? It means that we take whatever we have been given and we give it back to this world, even if we're broken. And somehow in the very act of giving light and life in this world, we receive anew the life and grace of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat>